Well, good morning. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 4, so you could turn there with me. We, uh, we had quite an exciting week. Let me tell you several events that happened this week. One is we had a meeting over in San Juan, because we're all going to be moving over there the first Sunday of August. And uh, the people over there have such a great attitude. They said, we're going to be the host and hostesses. So they got together, uh, some of their key leaders, to ask two questions. One is, okay, how are we going to host? And somebody said, you know, it's different between hosting if you have a family over for dinner at your house one night versus if you have, you know, your kids and grandkids move back in for two years. <laughs> right? And uh, so uh, we're going to be having the move-in kind of plan. So it's a little different. And, and uh, so the cool first question they ask is, how do we get ready to host? And they're doing that. And uh, to, just to make it as smooth as possible. And the second is, how do we, even while those people are from Dana Point are here, how do we keep doing things so that when they all head back to the Dana Point campus, we're stronger as a, as a congregation for the Lord right here in San Juan when after, after we finish hosting and they've moved out? So that was one of the, a huge blessing to me. The second was that uh, our music team has contacted the people over there to say, we would like to get the space ready. And uh, so imagine saying, well, we're going to move into somebody else's house and on their good graces, but could we upgrade your house first? Because you need paint, you need this, you need that. And so, uh, you know, we've been saying, how do we get the uh, auditorium or the sanctuary over there ready for us to come over and worship? How do we uh, give it uh, fresh colors and uh, get the sound and the lights and the, and the, the everything that, that we think we we would need. And um, uh, much to our surprise, they've taken the attitude, even the school has taken the attitude, well, come on over, do what you want, get it ready. And uh, whatever you want, the answer is yes, uh, kind of thing. And we've, we've actually been very surprised and pleased that the Lord is in that as well. And then the third thing was about 13 of us here from staff went to a conference, a church conference, church growth conference uh, called Thrive up in Sacramento this week. And so we took lots of time listening to good speakers and singing and, and praising. But probably the best and my favorite time was when the 13 of us got together at the end and said, okay, what are we taking home? How do we use this as a stepping stone? Somebody pointed out Ty has talked a lot about money and a lot about buildings and uh, that those are important, but those aren't all that it's about, that this is really heading into a spiritual journey as a people. And I appreciate that. And then one of them even said, you know, it's like we're all getting in the same motorhome we're going to drive around the country. We better be sure we like each other and that, you know, there's, we've worked out the bugs between us as we uh, take this journey together. So... I got thinking about that, that, uh, you know, God's at work and we're following him and we're going to take this journey together. And um, it's not, when you take a trip, it's not enough just to arrive. You know, you go somewhere and maybe it's far away and you leave most of your stuff behind and you, you, you slim down to what you can get into your suitcase and what you're going to take with you. And then you take your trip and maybe you have some delays or some, uh, some problems along the way. And uh, when you finally arrive, you might be exhausted, but you ha really haven't done anything yet. And it's not just about us moving from here to San Juan. We, we're called as the church of Jesus Christ to still be about doing his work, to make disciples of all nations, to care about the, the poor and the needy people around us, to, to grow people in their faith and to uh, keep uh, seeing people baptized and growing up in their faith and uh, uh, ministering and, and flourishing for the Lord. And so uh, the fact that we're moving to a new place, we still, have a, the, we still have that work to accomplish for the Lord. It's not all just about moving. You see what I'm saying? Is we want to be about finishing God's work so that we hear him say, well done. 
And uh, so it's not just about going from one place to the next. It's how do we uh, fulfill the job that he would have for us in the process. So we're tracking with Moses in Exodus because he had had some setbacks in his life um, and uh, he felt like a failure. He had uh, actually murdered somebody trying to get them out of the way so that he thought things would move forward and it didn't turn out the way he thought. He spent the next 40 years feeling sorry for himself, feeling broken, telling himself you're a loser, you're a nothing and uh, hiding from Pharaoh who's looking for him to put him to death and to kill him for his crime and hiding from Pharaoh, Moses runs right into God and God commands him, go show yourself to Pharaoh <laughs> and so, um, you know, Pharaoh's rejected him and God enlists him and Pharaoh wants to kill him and God wants to use him and it's kind of scary, I mean, because God's more powerful than Pharaoh God can light bushes on fire and keep them burning God knows his name. God knows where he lives. God knows his history. God, God knows all about him. He knows his failures. God can take his stick and turn it into a snake. He can take it and give him leprosy in a second. He can turn water into blood. I mean, he, and God wants to set his people free in Egypt. And these are the very same people who have ridiculed Moses for his first attempt to help them out of their uh, struggles and his last, as far as if Moses was going to get to choose, that he would ever try to help them. And yet God is moving. God is wanting to move his people to a better place. He wants to move them from slavery into freedom. And he's wanting to use Moses to do it. And Moses doesn't think that's such a great idea. So God answers all of Moses' objections. We looked at a lot of those last week. And finally, Moses accepts the divine commission and he sets out for Egypt. And it says in verse 20, Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Now, it's interesting. Last week, we had a lot of fun singing that song, Moses, about God saying, give me your stick. And uh, give me, it's just a, he says, it's just a rod. It's just a staff. And everywhere in Exodus, before that event, it talks about the rod of Moses or the staff of Moses. But after Moses says, God says, what's in your hand? Give it to me. After, and then he turns into a snake and then back into a stick and Moses picks it up. It's referred to as the rod of God in Moses' hand. It's no longer Moses. It doesn't belong to Moses anymore, even though it was his stick. Well, what's in your hands? I mean, think about it. What have you had in your hands today? Your, your keys, your smartphone, your calendar, your pen, your wallet, your purse, your children, your spouse. What is it that God has placed in your hand? Are you willing to give it to God to say, God, this is yours? So that's what Moses had to do. And God said, whatever you got in your hand, I wanted it. It belongs to me. So verse 18 says, Moses, after the burning bush experience, went back to his father-in-law, Jethro, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see where they are, if they're still alive. And Jethro says to Moses, go in peace. It's interesting to me, this is just kind of, I mean, it's a little point, but it's kind of fun that Moses, what Moses didn't say, because he's so male. 
He didn't, I mean, he didn't come to Jethro and say, guess what? 40 years tending your sheep out here in the wilderness I had an experience today I've never had before. This bush is on fire. It doesn't go out. God speaks right out of the bush, says I'm on holy ground, take off my shoes, he turns my stick into a snake, and then back into a stick. He takes my hand and makes it leprous, and, and then he said, turns water into blood. Then he says, go let my people go from Egypt. Now, could you please let me go to Egypt to do what God said? He didn't say any of that. He just says, I want to go to Egypt and check on my family. It's like when he gets home from work and he says, well, you say, how was your day? And he goes, fine. And that's it. And so Moses took his wife, it says, and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and he went back to the land of Egypt and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. What do we hold in our hand for comfort or for balance? We have God's word. And in it, of course, we learn all about God. And I would encourage you to be reading God's Word to, to, to study. You could even take this book of Exodus and read ahead. It would take you only about an hour and a half uh, to read the whole book and to see how what God, what God was at work and how God was particular about even very small details in this book. And he wanted things to be exactly right. And he wanted things done God's way and in God's timing. And so... Uh, Moses gives his rod to God, and then he heads to Egypt. And it's, he said to Moses, verse 21, when you go back to Egypt and see that what you do before Pharaoh and all the miracles uh, that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Moses says, wait a minute, I'm supposed to go tell him, let the people go, and you're going to harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you will say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now, <clears throat> this thing about Pharaoh having a hard heart, there are 10 times that God has given credit for hardening Pharaoh's heart. And we would ask, is that fair that God would harden his heart and then punish him for having a hard heart, for refusing to do what God wants him to do? God hardens Pharaoh's heart, then punishes him for it. Eleven times, however, it mentions that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. In fact, the first two references tell us that God will harden Pharaoh's heart at some point in the future, a prediction what God was going to do after Pharaoh began to harden his own heart. And the next 10 of 11 references tell us that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. When Cindy and I were first married, we took a job in Massachusetts at a large camp. And just before we left, somebody gave us a little six-week-old puppy, a, a Sheltie, a little lassie. And we got there and kind uh, of got in the habit that every day as I left home and kissed Cindy goodbye, walk um, about 100 yards to work, that the dog would follow me out and then would have free reign, 365 acres, just to roam. I think he had certain rounds that he would do, places he would stop, people he would go see, uh, you know, uh, all those rabbits to chase and all that stuff. I know he did some dancing on the street with cars and, um, you know, he would just go play. And when he got hungry or thirsty, he would come back home. And so usually in the evenings, he would show up about the time I was as I was walking back he seemed to know and we would walk back in the house together and, and enjoy the evening together well after about two years we moved to Visalia uh, to take a job as a youth pastor and we moved into what somebody described as a, um, a substantial house in a middle-class neighborhood which is a nice way of saying it was 1,400 square feet, three bedroom, two bath, with a backyard of about 200 square feet. And so our little dog had one job from then on the rest of his life. Get out. 
get out. He didn't know what he'd done, that he had to go to prison, that every day he's stuck in this little backyard, he's explored everything, and he's ready to go explore. And so he would check every board every day to see if anything was loose. Could he get out? Okay, you open the front door, and uh, he would be gone. So you're trying to leave for a trip. He's gone. He's not just gone a minute or two or five or ten or an hour. He's out doing some rounds all around the neighborhood. He's going to come back when he gets hungry or, or tired. And uh, so, you know, there's times where I hope that uh, he would be found in that dance on the street with the cart. Well, that would be a sub-Christian thought, so I take that back. But, uh, you know, there were times where you just open the door and say, go. Because he's just sitting there just waiting. As soon as there's a crack, he's going to go. It was in his heart. That's all he wanted to do was to run free, to get out over and over. We never broke him of that. The rest of his life, he had one goal, get out. Now, God knew in advance that Pharaoh would harden his heart, and Pharaoh did so on his own initiative, and he bears the full responsibility for that. But at some point, God just confirmed it and said, Pharaoh, you're hardening your heart, and I will help you with that. Paul talks about the same topic in Romans chapter 1, about people who are intentionally not responding to God with an appropriate contrite heart. It says in verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Just as God gave up hard-hearted, headstrong people to their lusts, to their passions, and a reprobate mind, the very things they were insisting on doing, God basically opened the door and said, if that's the direction you want to go, if this is how you want to do it, go. He gave Pharaoh up to a stubborn heart. So when God hardened Pharaoh's heart, he did so in a free and sovereign manner, not in a capricious or arbitrary way. Paul talks about this a little later in Romans in chapter 9, verse 14. He said, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. See, in discussing God's sovereignty, Paul points to the example of Moses and Pharaoh, saying God had mercy on Moses, and he hardened Pharaoh's heart, and God was acting justly and in his sovereign freedom both ways. So there's a tension for us between divine sovereignty and human freedom, and yet both are taught in Scripture, and we believe in the existence and the validity of both, even though to us they seem to like they contradict or that they are in dissonance with one another. Well, God gave Moses a job to do. Then he tells him in advance, it's not going to be well received. So get ready for negative reactions, people's anger and rejection. You say, well, wow. Well, we're told that, aren't we? We're told to go make disciples of all nations. And that not everybody's going to receive the message. And that even Jesus himself, I mean, think about this. He submitted himself to God's plan to leave heaven, set aside what's ever necessary to come here to be among his own people. And the Bible says his own people rejected him. They did not receive him. But to all who do receive him, he gives the power to be the sons and daughters of God. 
Jesus came to the earth knowing in advance that many people would reject him and his message, but he came anyway, and he shared it anyway. And that's what God is directing Moses to do. Share God's word even if you know it will be rejected. He says, then you will say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may worship me. In the uh, Bible times, in the ancient world, the firstborn son is the most cherished child in your family. He's the principal heir of the father. He carries on the family tradition, the family name, the family possessions. And uh, God is saying, Israel is my firstborn son. They are special to me. I know they've lived in Egypt for over 400 years. You think I've abandoned them, but they are mine, and I love them, and I'm going to rescue them out of Egypt. God goes on, and see, he had never said that to Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. He never said, I am. And then in the New Testament comes in the whole picture of God as Father. Even closer relationship. Well, let's get back to Moses. He's gone home. He's collected his wife, his two sons. He's asked for his father-in-law's blessing, who's also his employer. So he's asking for a leave of absence. And um, he, he is supposed to head to Egypt. And then he heads out to Egypt, and the next few verses just come out of left field. I mean, it is a punch you just never saw coming. Look at verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, it was about a three-day journey, so they're at their hotel. Uh, the Lord met him and sought to put Moses to death. Then Zipporah, his wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. So he, God let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, a little of the backstory here. Back in Genesis 17, when God made a covenant with Abraham, he said circumcision is going to be the sign of the covenant. And those who are entering the covenant with me, well, the, all the males will be circumcised on the eighth day uh, of their life as a sign of the covenant. So Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised. And any uncircumcised male was to be uh, cut off from the rest of the people because he is considered that he had broken God's covenant. Now, in this case, Moses here has left. He's come to Midian. He's been hiding, and um, he is discouraged. It's kind of his tail's between his legs, and he hasn't done what he knows is supposed to be done. He hasn't, he hasn't followed the covenant that God had given to his people. And uh, here he is, um, I mean, circumcision is a major part of the covenant that God had with Abraham, and Moses has neglected to keep it. So how can he return to Egypt to be the leader of God's people if he's not following God's way himself? And so this passage is obscure. I mean, even the rabbis have trouble explaining it, but the meaning is not secure. Moses learns that disobeying God is more dangerous than facing a frustrated Pharaoh. And the lesson is simple to say. It's just harder for us to do. And here it is. Ready? Just obey God. Just obey God. Read God's word, listen to his voice, and just follow God. Just to do what God tells you to do. Even if it's hard, even if it's difficult or painful, just follow God. It's really the best way. Verse 27 is when Moses has gotten to Egypt. His life has been spared by God. He's found his brother Aaron. It says, Moses and Aaron gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs, the miracles, in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel. And when they heard and when they had seen their, he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. 
Moses had this great fear he was going to be rejected by the people of Israel when he got to, to Egypt and that they would not believe the wonderful news he was bringing. So God had given him miracle after miracle after miracle to do. And so they get there and they do the miracles and they say, God has sent me back here. And the people get excited about it. They bow their heads and they worship. They've either forgotten or they have forgiven uh, the fact that Moses had murdered somebody in a misguided effort to save Israel. And they worshiped God. Now, God will always have people on this earth to worship Him. Neither apostasy or heresy or persecution can eradicate God's people from this earth. We live at a time where a genocide is going on against Christians this year because their crime is they love Jesus. And God sees, and He knows, and He cares. It will be impossible for them to eliminate God's people completely from the earth. God never will allow it. And the miracle here is that in the preaching, some people believe, not all, but some. Now, we can't get too optimistic about these people that Moses was dealing with because he's rescuing them out of slavery, and they start out so well, but they really have a kind of a, a lagoon theology. You know, it's warm and wide, not very deep. So it's about an inch deep, about two miles wide of, of their worship and their excitement about this because when things get tough, they turn to murmuring and then complaining and then all-out rebellion against Moses and then into idolatry against God. And, you know, Christians experience some of the same. That, uh, I mean, we're people of children of dust, so we're never too far away from error and weakness and sin. And God is calling us just like he called them. Worship God. Do what he tells you. Follow his word, even when things get challenging. So having gone to the people of Israel and gotten their blessing and uh, being enthused by that, it says afterwards, Moses and Aaron, this is chapter 5 now of Exodus, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, huh, who's the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now, this kind of really hits Moses right in the face. It's like a slap in the face. Here he's had this burning bush experience where God has spoken to him. He's seen miracles in the desert that he can repeat over and over. He's had this uh, uh, blessing of his father-in-law to take the family and go do what he needs to do. He's had this wonderful reception and reunion with his long-lost family in Egypt. He's had God's declaration that I'm going to free the people. It's been accepted with joy. They've worshiped God together. Go get them. Gong. Pharaoh says, I don't know the Lord. I'm not going to let him go. My dad used to have a quote because he was a military man, so when something was happening he didn't like, he'd ask, who authorized that? You know, anytime you're going to do something, you've got orders, and on the orders there's an authorizing signature of somebody who says, this is what you're going to go do. So he would basically be saying, I'm not authorizing that. I'm the authorizing authority. Pharaoh says, I don't know the Lord. I'm not signing it. Now, how true that was, but how tragic that he didn't know the Lord. If he'd only known the Lord, he would have known that he was dealing with the creator of heaven and earth, that he shouldn't be telling God. He should be asking God. He should be on his knees before God, listening to God's voice and doing what God told him to do, but he didn't know. If he had only known, he would have known this was the provider of Joseph who had saved Egypt and the world from starvation. He would have known that God had the ability and the power to perpetrate plagues on Egypt to get his attention and to keep ratcheting it up over and over. 
he would have found out, or he did find out, that God was the provider of dry land through the bottom of the sea to save his people. If he'd only known that all the earth belonged to this God of Moses, if he'd only known he might have responded more appropriately, he would have spared himself and his family and his countrymen a lot of grief if he'd only known. Is it any different today? People don't really know God. They don't really know that Jesus is his son, that Jesus came into this world to save sinners, to break the bondage and the power and the stain of sin. And he died on the cross and he rose from the dead. I mean, if they knew, perhaps they would bow their heads and worship God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, Moses and Aaron uh, continued with Pharaoh and said, please, let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness. But the king basically responded, no, you're just being lazy. Do those people have nothing better to do? Give them more work. So he said, more, make more bricks and no straw. He didn't give them one of the important ingredients. And he beat the foreman and said, they're just being lazy. And so these foremen are caught in the middle because they have to get the people to produce more bricks. And they turn to Pharaoh. He calls them lazy. And then they turn to Moses, verse 21. And they basically say, hey, thanks a lot, buddy. So glad you showed back up. Verse 21 says, the Lord, they're talking to Moses, and they said, the Lord, look on you and judge you, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and you have put a sword in their hand to kill us. You know, they start by blaming and complaining and turning on the leadership. It doesn't solve the problem. God has something in mind, and it was going to be tough for them to do, and they simply needed to do it God's way and in God's timing, and they're feeling the pressure, and they're rejected by Pharaoh, and Moses is confounded, and he goes to God, verse 22, and he says, Oh, Lord, why have you done this evil to your people? Why did you ever send me here? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people, and you've not delivered your people at all. God, you're not being fair. You've heard this statement, no good deed goes unpunished. This seemed, to Moses, it seems that way he and the foreman had made the mistake of presuming how God was going to work and how God was going to get his things done. And uh, we, we can do this, get in the same problem when we try to program God and imagine that we know how God's going to act in a certain situation. This conference we went to had 3,000 people there. I didn't talk to one other person who has uh, the situation we do where we're gonna, they're going to move off their campus, fix it up, and then move back. So, there, I mean, who do you talk to to say, what, how does the story go? And uh, so, I mean, God's doing something new with us, and it's kind of exciting because it's not all scripted, and we just need to stay close to God and follow him through, through this because he'll get us through. And faith continues to trust God even when the current details aren't appearing to be heading in the right direction. Faith knows that God's not sitting on his hands. He's not sitting on his hands. He's got you right where he wants you. And God is calling Moses, and he was, he's, he was, and he's calling us. And Moses is sitting there going, I fail, I fail, I fail. Nothing ever works out right. Why do I even try? Why am I here? And God's saying to him, Moses, it's not about you. I'm the Lord. You just be faithful. Winston Churchill's given credit for saying success is the ability to go from one failure to the next with no loss of enthusiasm. Moses going, oh, I failed, I failed, I failed, I'm failing again. And God says, keep on, keep on, keep on. Now, maybe this is the encouragement you need today because God gave Moses a tough job to do. And God gives us challenges as well. And God was with Moses every step of the way, even when he didn't know where God was, didn't feel like God was there, he couldn't see God. God was with him, and God is with us too. And God had his best interest at heart. 
And sometimes that includes rejection and ridicule or a breaking experience. And God has our best interest at heart as well. And it had all those things for Moses. It had all those things for Jesus. And it might just have all those things for us as well. So we just need to listen to God's voice and to follow him. Because God is not sitting back doing nothing. Look what we just celebrated. That God is behind the scenes reconciling this world to himself. Shall we pray? Dear God, I thank you for the work that you're doing in Jesus Christ in this world, that you've got a plan, that you include us in that plan. I pray that even when things are tough, that we will just listen to your voice and we will follow you. And in following you, we will know your joy in great measure. And we thank you for being our great God. Amen.